0: Welcome to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable Podcast, where we discuss a range of issues in the fast-moving field of biomedical informatics. I'm Jason Moore, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Marilyn Ritchie, and we are coming to you from Penn Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. You can find us at bmipodcast.org. I'm Jason Moore, and it's great to be back to host episode two of the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast. We are coming to you live on tape from the Idea Factory of the Penn Institute for Biomedical Informatics. Sitting next to me is co-host Marilyn Ritchie. Marilyn, what have you been up to since our last recording?
1: Well, I've been really busy with a lot of different things lately. Um, I've been doing some teaching in the GCB graduate program. So for those of you uh, not familiar, it's the um, graduate group for genomics and computational biology. And I've been teaching a few lectures on statistical decision theory and um, machine learning to first-year graduate students. So that's been a lot of fun. Um, It was a lot of uh, thought went into thinking back to how to teach decision theory to such a broad mix of students. So Some of these students are biologists and some are computer scientists and some are mathematicians. So it was a lot of fun putting those lectures together. Um, My lab's been working on a number of manuscripts. As we talked about last time, I try not to submit many papers during the holidays. We did actually submit two, both to high impact journals and both have gone out for review. This was actually right before the holidays really got into full swing, Um, but we're working on a number of others. So I've been doing a lot of editing papers lately. And then the other thing is really around conferences. So we just got back from AMIA, the American Medical Informatics Association meeting, which was in Washington D.C. It was a great conference this year. So much exciting science, and it felt very upbeat, like a lot of really exciting initiatives going on. Um, I just came back from Las Vegas, where I gave a talk at the American Society for Health System Pharmacists. It was an education panel on pharmacogenomics, so that was a lot of fun. And it was specifically in their informatics uh, section or informatics institute. And then uh, lastly, I've been deep in the throes of planning the AMIA Informatics Summit. So that meeting is held at the end of March in Houston. I am the vice chair for the Translational Bioinformatics Track And we've been busy lining up the keynote speakers, getting all of the sessions lined up, and a lot of meeting planning. But it looks like a fabulous agenda, and we're really looking forward to it. Jason, what have you been up to?
0: Well, it's been a crazy fall. I'm very much looking forward to the holiday break coming up. Uh, A little bit of downtime. Uh, We're almost there. Another week. Uh, So close. Can't wait. Can't wait. Absolutely. Um, Had a good AMIA uh, last month uh, in Washington, D.C., and that went really well. It was a busy AMIA this year. I'm involved in a lot of different committees and a lot of people to meet with and um, and of course the science and the posters. And we had a booth uh, that, went, that went well and had a lot of visitors and uh, were able to highlight the podcast and, and other things that we're working on. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, got an R01 submitted um, on uh, unbiased evaluation of machine learning algorithms. So uh, hopeful, uh, really excited about that project. I gave a talk for what's called the U Scholars Program. This is a Undergraduate research program that I'm involved with here at Penn that focuses on getting freshmen engaged in research. So I gave a five-minute lightning talk for them last week, and that was uh, that was fun. Uh, I gave a lecture on automated machine learning for our machine learning course. I gave a lecture on bootstrapping and permutation testing for our uh, new a new statistics course that's being taught here. Uh, those were fun. Uh, we also had a departmental retreat. My, I'm in the Department of Biostatistics, Epidemiology, and Informatics, DBEI, here at Penn. And we're uh, getting ready to launch a new chair search. Um, so if any listeners are interested, feel free to reach out to me. The uh, advertisement for that position will go out probably in February. So we're in the final stages of planning that search. But we had a departmental retreat last uh, last week that went really well. and kind of a visionary retreat thinking about what what is the future of these three disciplines look like and how we work together and it's holiday season party at, uh, time at uh, party time at uh, Penn and I uh, I love this time of year at Penn uh, many of the big centers and departments have holiday parties and it's a great opportunity to uh, not only interact with colleagues um, but also celebrate a year of hard work and uh, Penn really does a nice job with that mm-hmm. My name is Michael Besich and I am Chairman and Distinguished University Professor of Biomedical Informatics at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, and you are listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable
2: podcast with Jason and Marilyn.
1: Before we get into our discussion topic for the day, we have a few announcements. In case you are listening to us for the first time, you can find us at http bmipodcast.org. That's our website that has the show notes and links to the podcast. We are always interested in feedback, and you can send that to feedback at bmipodcast.org. You could also post your feedback as a review on iTunes. And as always, you can send us notes on Twitter. And the podcast is now on Google Podcasts, in addition to the other platforms.
0: Now, on to our discussion topic. Each episode, we will pick a hot topic for discussion. Today, our topic is data science. Marilyn will introduce it.
1: Thank you, Jason. So we picked data science as the topic today because it is such a hot topic in both the scientific literature, but also in the media and kind of lay audience uh, news articles as well. I think it's safe to say that data science is emerging in nearly every field of science, and it's becoming more and more trendy and and popular to label yourself as a data scientist. And we're seeing a lot of education programs and departments and institutes and centers being created all over the country labeled as data science. So we think, you know, it's an important topic for the future of science. So it's worth us talking about here on the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast. It's an area that, that we think a lot about and there are clear kind of intersections between data science and informatics. So first, one of the things that I wanted to bring up is an article that I found as I was kind of looking for materials for this topic. It was data science trends for 2019. And so this is an article that was published on towardsdatascience.com. It was authored by Hugo Lopez back in December of 2018. And he made predictions about what the trends were gonna be for 2019. So I thought now that we're at the end of 2019, it might be fun to look back and see if he was right. So he really hit on three points. One, how can we minimize the time spent by data scientists on data cleaning and feature engineering? Two, how can we define trust in the context of machine learning? And three, if we say that a machine model is fair, what are its characteristics? And I kind of laughed whenever I saw these because these are things that we tend to talk about in informatics all the time. So, you know, how do we trust our machine learning models? How do we interpret them? We already talked about that on an earlier episode of the podcast. Um, What are characteristics of machine learning models and whether they're doing well or not? That's something else that we talked about. And then we're always talking about and maybe complaining about data cleaning. I think we spend more time on data cleaning than we do on data analysis. And this is something that he thought would be a popular topic over the next year. So I think all of these we've certainly talked about and work on in 2019, and, and are definitely the case. I don't know. Do you want to comment on that before I talk about what's coming for 2020?
0: No, I agree. Uh, spot on.
1: And so another article, and these will both be linked in the show notes, is what are the trends going to be for 2020? So this is a different author, but it's on dataflock.com. And so that's data, F-L-O-Q. And so they talk about the five trends for 2020, and and I think they're spot on. Um, One is organizations becoming insights-driven. So I think what we've seen a lot before, both in healthcare, in academia, and in other industries, is seeing analytics as crucial to the business, crucial to everything that we do. But the emerging trends are about not just looking at the data and kind of spitting it out, but it's really using the data to drive decision-making. And it's the inferential aspect of data science that is supposed to emerge in 2020, and I think that's right. Um, talks about number two, data scientists are earning a really great living, but they're going to need to specialize and take a deeper dive into the business area that they're in. So just being able to crunch numbers and work with big data is not going to be enough anymore. As the field gets more competitive, the professionals that can really dig into their discipline is going to become kind of the differential that that brings them kind of into the higher pay grades and getting more opportunities. Number three is kind of piggybacks off of number two is the need for decision makers and specialists. So not only are people going to need to be able to do analytics, they're going to need to know the discipline that they're working in and be able to not just make predictions, but help the whatever industry they're in actually design strategy and implementation of those predictions, not just, you know, here are come. Kind of, Some statistics and some numbers. They're going to need to know their discipline and and make decisions around that. Um, The last two, I think, uh, are key, especially for the trainees. So number four is the skills that you need to power through and really lead in data science. Um, Our number one is Python, which I think is obvious, but then they list also R, Hadoop, SQL, Spark, Java, and a few others. And I think we've seen this certainly in informatics over the last several years there used to be i feel like a much broader set of computer languages that people use but more and more it's a lot of python and then last is around regulatory so the ethic and legal social issues around data science and using data wisely Um, this has emerged in europe i think a little bit ahead of the us but we're seeing this more and more in the us as well and and that's going to be an emerging hot trend for 2020 Um, The last thing that I'll mention, and I'll I'll kick it over to you, Jason, is the, as I mentioned, there are a lot of degree programs. And so I do have a link on here um, on the show notes for uh, a website that has the top 20 programs in data science for undergrads. Um, I was shocked that there are that many programs at this (laughs) point in data science. And what's really fascinating is that they really span a lot of different schools. So some of them are in schools of engineering, some are in computer science, some are in business. So it's not as though even the field of data science has found its identity or its home in a particular scientific area. It's kind of coming up all over the place, which I thought was really interesting. And, and I'll be interested to see where these programs go over the next 15 or 20 years, because they certainly didn't exist when I was an undergrad. So know, what points do you want to make about data science?
0: So that was a, that was a great sum, summary, Marilyn. You know, I've I've thought a lot about data science as as we've observed it explode over the last couple of years. And I have a I have a couple of thoughts about this. First of all, I think, you know, one of the reasons that data science has moved so quickly and exploded so quickly is that um, that it's really driven by problem solving, right? You have a problem you want to solve and you wanna solve it quickly. And data scientists are able to take what they need from different disciplines, put it together, make it work to to make some progress. And I think we as disciplinarians sometimes get bogged down in the ideology or, you know, other aspects of our respective disciplines that that can can really slow us down and and sometimes prevent us from making as much progress um, as we need to on a, on a particular problem. So. So I see data scientists as, as these people that to some degree don't really care about the disciplines themselves, right? They just care about the tools and techniques and methodologies that we can provide that help them get to a get to a solution. And that creates um, an interesting dynamic between data scientists and disciplinarians. And but and you know, when I think about disciplinarians, I'm thinking about people in computer science, in statistics, in informatics. Um And I think the disciplinarians feel threatened by data science for that reason, that they're not bound like we are to our own disciplines, right? We're bound by the journals we publish in. We're bound by our funding agencies. We're bound by our community and their expectations of us. And that, to some degree, creates a box around us that we have Mm -hmm. to live in, right? Sometimes you want to just break out of that box and solve a problem and move on. And I think data scientists uh, are those people that can do that. And that's why it's taken off so quickly. So I'm really interested in this dynamic and, and the threat that each of our disciplines feel uh, as data science moves forward. Now, coming at it from a disciplinary uh, point of view, from, from our discipline of biomedical informatics, uh, you know, one of the things that concerns me is that uh, people outside the quantitative sciences often see data science and informatics as interchangeable, that they're one and the same. And I think it's important to make the point that informatics is more than data science. Sure, data science is an important part of what we do, but it's not, it doesn't define the discipline of biomedical informatics. And maybe this is the disciplinarian in me feeling threatened by this, right? Yep. Uh, so coming at it as a disciplinarian, you know, I think an important part of informatics is the uh, the social and and psychological um and behavioral aspects of informatics. You know, We care a lot, not just about developing tools and software and algorithms and technology, but we care about how people use them and how people interact with an electronic health record, how people interact with a piece of software, how a patient interacts with their clinical information that's being presented to them. And I think that's what really differentiates us in a disciplinary way from data science, is that we have this, like you said, a much deeper, um, you know, we, we explore these is- issues in a much deeper way. So anyway, I find this whole dynamic between data science and, and each of these respective disciplines very interesting.
1: Well, and I wonder if what will happen over the next few years is that maybe we'll see less of kind of data scientists with that general label. So if the trends as predicted are right, it's going to require what is currently considered a data, data scientist to specialize in an area. And so what we may see are people who kind of were previously data scientists but are now an informatics data scientist or a computer scientist data scientist. And so kind of really merging the disciplines. If you need to specialize, they're going to start to really butt up against that disciplinarian Mm -hmm. kind of aspect. And so maybe that label will evolve some over the next few years as that tension kind of continues to build.
0: Well, it'll be interesting a year from now to revisit this topic and and see uh, what what's happened and how those how those predictions uh, played out. You know, I think a lot of data science is being driven by certainly the uh, the business industry side of things, and you know who have real problems to solve. Right? You want to develop a new drug, and and things aren't moving as quickly as you think, and maybe data science can play a role. So there's been this. Mass scramble over the last five years to hire data scientists, put in place that infrastructure, um, but I think um, I, I think some of the some of the sources you touched on, uh, re, you know, refer to this that to make real progress on something so complex as drug discovery, it requires more than just throwing data science at it, right? And I think these big companies and I think academia even is is probably gonna discover over the next year or two, maybe already discovering that it's just not enough that you, you need yes, you need the technology, you need you need the algorithms, but you also need the disciplinary knowledge to make it work and really make, make advances.
1: Yeah. Well luckily we've recorded this and so we can listen back a year <laughs> from now and, and see see what happened.
0: It's now time for our news segment. Uh, These are just a few things that caught our eye, of course not meant to be comprehensive. Uh, I'll do the first couple. Uh, First I saw a piece last month in uh, the magazine Fast Company which focused on several limitations of virtual reality. And this caught my eye because I'm a huge fan of virtual reality and we uh, are here in the Institute for Biomedical Informatics are actively developing uh, for the technology. And they raised a couple issues. First of all, they raised the issue of health. Um, Some people feel dizzy or nauseous or uncomfortable after using virtual reality. And I think uh, this is a big limitation of the technology. And they suggest maybe things like augmented reality or holograms, which don't require you to put on a headset and and kind of feel lost in another world, but rather you're immersed in the you know the world as you see it and the hologram is just part of it like another object. Um, I think these technologies have huge potential.
1: I totally agree. And when I, I read this, I had to laugh because I'm one of those people that when I put on a VR headset, I get a pain in the back right side of my head, and so does one of my children, but not the other one. And so, you know, as someone trained in human genetics, I was like, this is genetic. We need to figure out. We have some sort of mutation that's leading to VR causing some sort of health issue for us. So I think this is fascinating.
0: That's really interesting. I'd love to talk to you more about that. Um, the second issue they raise is uh, lack of imagination in the development of software for VR and I have to agree I've been very underwhelmed with the software that's out there for VR from video games to other applications, scientific applications. I think um, it, it, it part part of me doesn't understand how that can be with such an exciting technology why more work hasn't been put into the software. Um, but I think um, but I think on one hand it probably is explainable. You know that there just isn't a huge market for VR yet, right? So companies aren't willing to invest a lot of dollars in in VR and develop the, you know, the really killer applications that are going to going to make the technology sing. So hopefully, hopefully we'll get there someday. But you know, VR may just kind of come and go, and we may be looking at holograms in a couple years. And and I'm I'm, okay, I'm certainly okay with that. But um, it's an interesting space. So there will be a. a links to the show not, uh, in the show notes to all of the articles that we're going to mention. All right, the second one I wanted to mention was a book that I ran across that was just published. Uh, it's called The Sense of Style, The Thinking Person's Guide to Writing in the 21st Century by Dr. Steven Pinker, uh, who's a psychologist at Harvard. Harvard. Um, in this book, uh, Pinker provides an explanation for why some people are so bad at writing, He says uh, that it stems from, and I quote, a difficulty in imagining what it is like for someone else not to know something that you know. The curse of knowledge is the best single explanation I know of why good people write bad prose. And I think that's so true, especially in a quantitative discipline like informatics or data science. Um, You know, we, we tend to forget what people who are not quantitative scientists don't know right and how they think about the world and how they see the world and so when we write we write to other informaticians uh, and and don't necessarily write to non-experts and um, and I think this applies to teaching as well when we teach students who don't understand the things we do we often take take that for granted right and and present at a much higher level uh, than the student is able to comprehend. So I, th- I think uh, I bought a copy of this book. It's on my reading list over the holidays. I really look forward to reading it. Um, and uh, I, from what I can tell so far, he's, he's right on topic. All right, the last thing I'll mention um, is that I saw a tweet from Dr. Lior Pachter from Caltech last month about a math professor uh, named Eric Basin from UC Davis. Uh, that has written a letter to a U.S. government official every day since the 2016 election. So here's somebody who was moved by the election, felt compelled to take action. Uh, and I've looked at some of these letters. They're really interesting. And they're to different politicians. They're on different topics. Um, but he has taken it upon himself to do something, right, about something he's not happy about. A whole bunch of things he's not happy about. Um, and so I, uh, there'll be a link in the show notes to his letters. I would definitely encourage everybody to take a look at them. I think it's a very honorable thing that he's doing. And I think each of us should be compelled to, to take action because politics does impact, uh, very, very dramatically in some cases, the work we do as scientists and scholars.
1: All right. I have a few items to, uh, to talk about as well. The first one, there was a piece in Nature last month on the mental health of PhD researchers demands urgent attention. Um, They cite a recent survey of more than 6,000 graduate students from around the world, and they found that 36% reported seeking help for anxiety and depression, and this is an increase over just a few years earlier. There's no question that there's more pressure being put on PhD students as universities put more pressure on faculty to publish in top journals, so that stress and anxiety and pressure is kind of coming from the top and trickling down to the PhD students. But I think in historically, we have not taught students with how to navigate and manage that stress and anxiety. And so the piece calls for systemic changes in our research culture. I thought it was a great article, I think there's a lot of really important points in there for us to think about, you know, especially in this day and age where we have more technology and resources than we've ever had before. It it's hard to wrap our heads around why anxiety and depression are so much higher than they were when we were graduate students. When everything we did was so much harder to do, now they should be able to be more efficient and things should be easier. And, and I think they are. Yet their anxiety and depression rates are higher. So I think we as a as an academic culture need to figure out how to solve that. The second one is that Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio is recruiting a new chair for their new department of computer and data science. It sounds like a really great opportunity to be on the ground floor of a new department. There are a lot of great people at Case Western, some exciting things going on there. We heard that in this search, they are open to people with expertise in bioinformatics. So uh, the link is in the show notes if you're interested or know someone who would be a great candidate for this chair position, send it their way. And then lastly, the news came out last week that the NIH All of Us Precision Medicine Research Program has announced their new leadership. Frances Collins, the director of the NIH, just announced them last week. Josh Denny will be the CEO, Stephanie Devaney is the Chief Operating Officer, and Eric Dishman will be the Chief Innovation Officer. Eric Dishman was the previous CEO of the research program, and he had announced earlier this year that he really wanted to take a step back from the CEO role and focus on where his passion and strengths really lie, which is in innovation. That was really needed at the start of this program to really get it off the ground. But now as they're kind of moving ahead full steam, they really wanted or he really wanted to be able to focus on new innovations and bringing in different technologies to the program. So there's a link in the show notes to the article um, I'm a member of the All of Us advisory panel, and so I knew that a change was going to be coming. And I have to say, they have selected, you know, Josh, Denny, and Stephanie have been part of the program for quite some time. And I think they're, you know, fantastic people to take on these roles. So I'm really excited about it.
0: Yeah, I agree. This is a very challenging project, but so important to our research community here in the United States and and I think globally. And uh, I agree, Josh and Stephanie are uh, ideal people to lead this. I can't imagine any, can't, can't think of anybody better to do it. So good luck to them.
1: Yeah, and congratulations to all three of you in your new roles. Now we're going to talk about listener feedback. Listener feedback is very important to us. We would very much like your questions, ideas for topics, and thoughts about how we can do a better job. Send your feedback to feedback at bmipodcast.org. You can also reach us on Twitter at BMI podcast. I'm sorry, b m I'm sorry, BMIR Podcast, or on Facebook. We would also love to have reviews on Apple Podcasts as this helps us get higher search results and means that more people can find our podcast.
0: The first uh, bit of feedback we had uh, since our last recording uh, is from Tai Bin Long uh, from here at Penn Medicine, asked us to submit the podcast feed to Google Podcast, and we did that, and it is now live.
1: A postdoc named Dr. Amrit Singh from the University of British Columbia tweeted, just heard both podcasts on my airplane emoji. So many resources to follow up on. Thanks.
0: And our friend, uh, Dr. Andrew King, who's a postdoc in biomedical informatics at the University of Pittsburgh, wrote on Twitter that he really enjoyed episode one of the podcast and suggested that we discuss biomedical informatics journals that students should be aware of. I think this is a great idea and uh, a good topic for a future podcast. Absolutely. Now on to our Journal Club discussion. Each episode, we will pick a recent paper for discussion. Today our paper is Putting the Why in EHR, Capturing and Coding Clinical Cognition. This was published last month in JAMIA by Dr. Jim Semino from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. I picked this paper because I just saw Jim discuss it as part of his Colin Award lecture at AMIA. His uh, main point in the paper is that electronic health records contain a lot of data, a lot of information about patients. But they don't provide information about clinical reasoning or the why. why. Why would an electronic health record recommend something to a clinician? He starts out the paper reminding us that EHRs were developed as a solution to inefficient and error-prone health care. And then he goes on to say that the New England Journal of Medicine published 27 articles over the last four years on the shortcomings of the EHR. So there's no shortage of criticism about EHRs, despite <laughs> how much progress we've made and how great they are in many, many aspects. So I personally think we've made great progress capturing and delivering lab tests, medications, diagnoses, etc. However, I agree with Jim that it's somewhat confusing as to as to why uh, why we don't have computer systems that help with clinical reasoning. As Jim says in the paper, we have all the raw materials, right? We we've done so much work on data standards, uh, terminologies. We have great algorithms for natural language processing. We've done a lot of work on biomedical ontologies. We have great tools like fast healthcare interoperability resource or FHIR. We have machine learning, tons of machine learning. We have all this great technology, uh, but why can't we put all the pieces together to help present the why to the clinician as they interact with the EHR to treat a patient? So Table 3 of this paper lists some of the information that could be added to the EHR that would move us in this direction. So for example, Jim lists uh, relating symptoms, signs, and problems to each other for automated decision support. Uh, That would be a big improvement. And he lists a whole bunch of other things such as explicit listing of differential diagnoses and relating orders to specific diagnoses. So this is a this is a great paper, and I think Jim makes a lot of lot of good good points. Um, so I have a couple couple discussion points about the paper. Uh, first of all, this will require a good amount of work on behalf of all involved in the creation and use of EHRs. However, as Jim states at the end of the paper, this will allow the HR to become a member of the healthcare team rather than just a database that serves up information. I think this is really key, and I you know we often talk about artificial intelligence and machine learning as being a, um, a member of the team and you know not replacing the data scientist, not replacing the informatician, but being there to help us as we move forward, just like another, another person. And uh, I, I really like the idea of the EHR being an assistant to, to the clinician rather than just this source of data sitting there in a, in a computer somewhere. I like this paper because it helped me think more deeply about the potential uses of the EHR. I really liked his vision. And I hope we head in this direction. It won't be easy, but the payoff could be huge. And one of the really cool features of this paper is that he provides an example, this is just a hypothetical made-up conversation between a clinician and the EHR, as if you're talking to the EHR, asking it questions and having a dialogue through it with it through a smart device like Alexa. Um, the first example he gives um, is, is kind of the negative example that demonstrates what it would be like uh, with, the, with the current EHR, uh, and, and the second, uh, a more positive example with the new EHR that he envisions with all these new features. And it's really interesting um, to see the comparison, and the examples really helped me understand the paper. So I thought this was, this was a highlight, and Jim presented this in his Colin talk at AMIA, and it really, struck me at the time. I thought the examples were very useful. The first example, really, you can tell from reading, I'm not going to read it, but you can tell from reading the first example that the clinician is having a hard time getting what they need from the EHR and connecting with the EHR in a meaningful way. And at one point, the EHR just starts spouting off the medical history of the patient, right, which is just overwhelming the clinician with, you know, perhaps unnecessary facts. Um, whereas in the second one, there's a much more meaningful dialogue and, and there's, you know, clearly clinical reasoning that the EHR is doing and, re- and really presenting the why that he, that we talks about.
1: Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I thought this was a great paper and the timing reading it was really kind of serendipitous for me. You know, one of the things that I've spent a lot of time thinking about lately is In the the space of genomic medicine and implementing genomic medicine into healthcare. So how do you take information from either whole exome or whole genome sequencing where you have Mendelian risk genes or polygenic risk scores or pharmacogenomics and put those genetic variants into the EHR in a meaningful way for clinicians and then build decision support? And you know, this is not a totally new concept, this is being done here and other places around the country. But what I think we're learning time and again is that if clinicians don't understand the why behind the information that's in there and why they should care and how they should use it, it's meaningless. And so as an example, a researcher here at Penn, Dr. Sony Tutteja led a study called the ADAPT trial, And it actually just got accepted for publication in um, one of the circulation, I think it's circulation uh, genetics journal. And what she learned in putting, so this was an example of a gene called CYP2C19, putting a particular variant into the EHR and building the decision support to tell physicians that patients who have this particular variant should not take the drug clopidogrel, also called Plavix. So during the trial, it worked beautifully. And this is when they had a research coordinator order the test. The result went into the EHR. The research coordinator was in the cardiac stent or cardiac catheterization lab where stents were being done to answer questions. And so if a pop-up came up, there was somebody to help them interpret it. As soon as the study ended and it went away from being research and now it's available as a clinical test, physicians don't order it. And the ones that do, don't know what to do with it because they don't have someone explaining it. And the way that it was built doesn't have the why. Why would I order this test? How would I use it? Why would I use it? Why does it matter? And so in conversations that we're having right now, we're thinking a lot about how to put that why in there. So meeting with the clinicians before we build anything into the EHR and learn about their workflow, learn what they understand about genomic medicine, And then start to build out prototypes in the EHR to show them and get their feedback before we just roll it out and say, here, use this. Learn what language they use and what language they understand. You know, for most clinicians, they don't want to know the specific mutation in the DNA. You know, some do, they want that level of detail. So it would be great for them to say, Alexa, explain to me why CYP2C19 star 2 matters. Most clinicians just want to know. Is my patient at risk for an adverse drug reaction or is my patient at risk to not have efficacy or not see an effect from this drug? And so we need to build that for them so that they can just do their jobs and and treat patients in the best way possible. So I, I think Jim is spot on and the more we as informaticians can partner with the clinicians to build the EHR and build our applications that live in and around it, I think the more successful they'll be.
0: That was a great example. And for the young people that are listening that want to get into clinical informatics, I think this would be a hot area, right? How do you transform the EHR to answer the why question, to do the clinical cognition? And and I, you know, if if the big EHR vendors are listening, you know, work with us to do this because oh my God, this would transform medicine if we could do this.
1: Now on to our open data discussion. Each episode, we hope to discuss a useful source of open data. Today, our data selection is the Data.gov resource. Jason is going to introduce this topic.
0: Thanks, Marilyn. I picked Data.gov because it's an extensive resource of open data, just waiting for innovative analyses. Here's a description of the resource from Wikipedia, and I quote, Data.gov is a U.S. government website launched in late May of 2009 by the then Federal Chief Information Officer of the United States, Vivek Kundra. Data.gov aims to improve public access to high-value, machine-readable datasets generated by the executive branch of the federal government. The site is a repository for federal, state, local, tribal government information made available to the public. So, there are over 250,000 data sets listed in data.gov on a wide range of different topics. It's important to note that data.gov doesn't provide direct access to data, but rather provides the metadata that points you to the data on a, on a separate server. The data are often hosted on other websites. Some of these lead to a direct download link of the data, while others are a bit more complicated. So, uh, I spent some time uh, exploring data.gov and found it really interesting. Um, I found over a thousand health-related data sets in the health category. And um, one of the recent contributions uh, that I found is a data set on accidental drug-related deaths from the state of Connecticut from 2012 to 2018. I was able to click a link and get a CSV file with all the data. Uh, The data set had 5,000 rows of deaths with columns that included age, sex, uh, race, residence, place of death, uh, type of location, was the death in a residence or a hospital, the cause of death, and whether drugs such as heroin, cocaine, fentanyl, and oxycotin were found in the body. So this, this is a really interesting data set and um, I think could, could have a whole bunch of different uses. Uh, another data set I found had death rates and life expectancy, uh, at birth, broken down by sex and race for every year since 1900. Um, and so I could see how this data set and maybe even the previous one that I mentioned could be used in conjunction with EHR data. So if you're asking a clinical question, here's a source of data that you could potentially merge or use as, as an auxiliary source of information for your EHR data analysis. I think the, uh, the possibilities are endless with these public data So I would highly encourage everybody to explore, especially students. I mean, if you're looking for a data set for class to do machine learning analysis or a data visualization or a statistical analysis for a class project, I mean, here's a source of open data. You can go, you can download the data, you can do all kinds of stuff with it. Have you ever used this, Marilyn?
1: No, I haven't. And in fact, I've never even heard about it until you brought it up. It sounds like a fascinating website. And not only for class projects, but I wonder if there are scenarios where people might be doing studies with an EHR or an epidemiology study, and, you know, often journals want to see replication of findings in independent data that was collected by someone else. It sounds like, you know, with 250,000 data sets, surely, you know, for some questions, there probably are data sets in here that are freely and open, available that people could use to do replication. So no, this is definitely something that I'm going to have to check out.
0: Yeah, I had a lot of fun exploring it and, and highly recommend taking a look at, you know, it may not be useful for everybody, but, um, but like you said, I think uh, there will be people for which this could, could really help their, their study.
2: Welcome. I'm Nancy Lorenzi, professor of biomedical informatics at Vanderbilt University. Today, you are listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast with Jason and Marilyn.
0: Now on to our Biomedical Informatics Conference updates.
1: We just returned recently from the 2019 American Medical Informatics Association Annual Symposium, or AMIA. It was held in Washington, D.C. November 16th to the 20th. Um, One of the really important things that happened at that meeting was the announcement of the AMIA Signature Awards. And we wanted to recognize our colleagues who were selected for each of these awards, so I'm going to read them all. The Morris F. Collin Award of Excellence was given to Jim Cimino from UAB. The Donald A.B. Lindbergh Award for Innovation in Informatics was given to Sean Murphy from Harvard. The Don Eugene Detmer Award for Health Policy Contributions in Informatics was given to Carolyn Peterson from the Mayo Clinic. The William Stead Award for Thought Leadership in Informatics was given to Lucilla Onomachado from UCSD. The Virginia Saba Informatics Award was given to Susan Matney from Utah, and the New Investigator Award was given to Joanna Abraham from WashU. If you are interested, there are additional awards and honors, and those, as well as the ones I just mentioned, mentioned can be found at amia.org.
0: Okay. Um, And as I mentioned, I had a great AMIA. And while I was at AMIA, I saw this great tweet from our friend, uh, Dr. Jesse Tenenbaum from Duke University on uh, tips for networking at AMIA. And I should mention, Jesse is a board member of AMIA. So she's very, very active at AMIA and has been for a while. And her Twitter handle is at Jesse T one zero two three. And this particular tweet is from uh, her Twitter feed on November 16th. So she has 14 all awesome tips for networking at AMIA, which is and let me just say before I read these that the networking component of AMIA and any other scientific conferences is so very important. Um, Networking creates opportunities it gets your name out there. Certainly, for young faculty going up for promotion and tenure, it's a way to help build your national reputation, which is a very important criteria for promotion at a lot of places. So, networking is one of the most important things you can do at a conference like this. So, here are her 14 recommendations, and I love each and every one of these. Uh, the first is to ask questions uh, either during or after talks, and be sure, and I, when you, when you, uh, ask a question, be sure and identify yourself, your name, your affiliation, so that people, you know, can attach a name to a face. Uh, number two, attend the state of the association town hall. I mean, you know, the, the, the first reaction I and I know this is because I, this is the way I've thought for many years is those are the things you skip, right? When you want to go do something fun or go, you know, go back to your room to do some work. But these um, can be a, a good way to get to know people and get to know what some of the important issues are. Uh, number three is tweet, uh, and be sure and use the conference hashtag when you tweet. Number four, join working groups and discussion forums related to your areas of interest, uh, and you can, get, you can get a list of these on the AMIA website. Uh, you know, joining a working group is a great way to get to know people and get, get engaged and for people to get to know you. Um, and, and when you do uh, join a working group, participate, show up, send messages, reply to messages, contribute to the discussions. Uh, number five, run for leadership positions in your working group. Um, may seem like a trivial thing, but, you know, these are important and, and uh, they look good on your CV. They give you experience um, and can help groom you for future bigger leadership positions. Introduce yourself to, this is number six, introduce yourself to someone you don't know at a coffee break. Um, and, uh, again, this is important. Don't be afraid to walk up to, um, somebody and say hello and introduce yourself and s- strike up a conversation. Number seven, resist the temptation to hide in your hotel room during the breaks. <laughs> um, because they, th- these are some of the most important parts of the conference. Um, so, you know, be present, be, be available. Those chance encounters can really, can really be big. Number eight, seek out people with the ACME fellow ribbons or other award ribbons because these are often senior accomplished people who are generally very willing to talk to young people and trainees and be be helpful and and don't mind at all being asked questions. Number nine, seek out people with board member ribbons Um, They're because the board members are really committed to you and to your experience at the conference, so they can be great people to talk to. Number 10, uh, women and allies of women's issues should join the Women in Informatics Discussion Forum. I think that's a great suggestion. Um, there's also a women uh, networking event called Wine W um, I N that um, is specifically for AMIA, so that's something to get involved with to meet other women and form a, a community. Number 12, ask your advisor, friend, or colleague to make introductions. That's a, a great way to get to know people. Number 13, uh, peruse the posters and talk to the authors. Uh, they want to talk to you. That's why they're standing there. Um, and the poster sessions at AMIA are fantastic. I really enjoy the poster sessions. They're very lively and great places to both talk to the poster presenters, but also other people that are there just reading posters. I have some of my best conversations at AMIA during the poster session. Uh, number 14, um, read or at least skim e-news, the email sent to members on Thursdays. It has calls for volunteers to participate in the scientific program committee to be a session chair. I remember actually this year a call came out about a week before AMIA asking for session chairs. So it's a, that's a great opportunity to, uh, to get involved with, with AMIA and get your face and your name known being a session chair or on the program committee. Uh, So thank you, Jesse. These are all uh, outstanding uh, suggestions. All right. Um, And finally, um, I had the pleasure of speaking with a number of poster presenters at AMIA, and two in particular caught my eye. Uh, The first um, was Adam Lee and the second Anna Dienee. Adam is a Ph.D. student in health informatics at the University of North Carolina, while Anna is a Ph.D. student in nursing at Duke University. And I was able to get short recordings of each of them uh, talking about their posters, and we will insert those next into the podcast so you can hear them. And they did a great job.
2: Hello, I'm Adam Lee from the University of North Carolina here at AMIA, um, talking about our presentation on GeoService, where we bridge clinical informatics uh, and public health informatics through geocoding our patient population from our clinical data warehouse and linking and finally, them to CLARITAS census data so we can characterize our patients based off the geography and statistics of their geography of where they live. We go through a process of doing completely offline geocoding processes uh, using SAS software uh, to update our references, then taking our uh, addresses from our patients, uh, streamlining them, finding out their where their location, their latitude and longitude, um, linking that into their census track or their federal identifying processing um, standard, then we can use this data to calculate so, the is, as the crow flies yeah. distance yeah. using the Haversine formula or the Great Circle formula to help with recruitment to find out how far they are away from our facilities or use the linkages of census data to see um, what kind of socioeconomic status they might have in those geographies. Um, Additionally, we can track longitudinal address moves and see how many times a patient moves, um, which could be correlated if a patient moves more um, or they hire utilization, utilizers of healthcare data or healthcare. Um, And so we've been live on this for about three years now, uh, continually improving our processes and offering the service to our researchers.
0: You want to mention your uh, GitHub link here? And,
2: uh, our code's available on uh, github.com, nctracksidsci slash geoservice.
0: Thank you very much, Adam.
3: Hi, good afternoon. My name is Anna Diane. I am a third-year PhD student from Duke University at the School of Nursing. So I'm currently presenting two posters at the AMIA 2019 symposium. The first poster I have is about patient perspectives of utilizing multiple digital health technologies to manage their diabetes. Um, And in that, we kind of just looked at the feasibility of even having patients track their own data using a wireless glucometer, um, a wireless cellular scale, and a Fitbit over six months. So we looked at data missingness, and um, basically just for, for patients views on using these technologies, a lot of patients actually really liked using the technologies and they've mentioned time and time again about data accessibility um, and how they felt empowered that they were able to bring their own data to their providers during their um, clinical meetings and use that to kind of guide their plan of care. And then the second poster we have here is actually related to the first. And so this is patients' um, perspectives on the data visualizations that we created from the data that we aggregated from their mobile health devices. So we basically presented them these visualizations and said for the past six months you've been tracking, here's the data, what do you think, how do you like how it's presented, do you understand it? Um, and so overwhelmingly we found that patients really loved visualizing their data, but they didn't necessarily understand what it meant. Um, So the next step for research in future directions, will be looking at how can we make these data and data visualizations actionable for patients to be empowered with their self-management of type 2 diabetes.
0: Wow, great. Thank you. Okay, it is now time for our segment on advice and topics of interest for trainees and junior faculty. Uh, Today, our topic of discussion is Tips for Writing Informatics Methodology Grants. Uh, And I'll just point out that the focus is on methodology grants, but uh, some of these tips apply more generally to all kinds of grants, applied grants as well. And these are tips, uh, 10 tips that I wrote down after serving on the National Library of Medicine, uh, what's now called the BUILDS uh, review panel, So this is based on my experience reviewing grants and writing grants over the last 20 years. Um, So I hope they'll be helpful. And again, these are really focused at methodologic grants. All right, number one, articulate an important and timely informatics question. Be forward thinking. Know what is hot and what's going to be hot in the future. Number two, propose new and novel informatics methods. Innovation is very, very important in informatics methodology. You need to know the literature, know where your method fits in. Um, If you're having trouble coming up with a truly innovative approach, you might try combining several existing methods in an innovative way to do something new. This is a a bit less exciting and and sometimes reviews less well than a truly innovative method, but um, if the uh, application uh, that opens up from that is important, then it, it can review well. Um, And innovation is very important. Uh, You you know, what you want to avoid is just incremental advancement on existing methods. Um, And I'll also say that this is something I struggle with every time. Being truly innovative in informatics is really, really hard. Coming up with something that's truly new, I'll often have an idea. First thing I do is I go to Google and inevitably I will find a paper that where somebody else has done it. So being truly innovative is hard, but it's very important. And if you can pull it off, your grants will be a lot more successful. Number three, avoid applied software engineering projects. Um, I mean, there are certainly plenty of avenues at the NIH for funding software engineering projects and plenty of institutes interested in that. Um, But um, if you're especially submitting to the National Library of Medicine, they're generally interested more in algorithms and methods and uh, things that are going to advance the discipline of informatics, whereas applied software engineering projects are more about solving a particular biomedical problem. Number four, compare your algorithm uh, to state-of-the-art uh, state algorithms in the field. So don't don't just propose a new algorithm or method. You have to have a baseline to compare it to, and that baseline should be recognized by the reviewers as the current state-of-the-art in the field. Number five, you need a solid plan for how you will ev- evaluate your novel informatics method. And this is really critical, and I, I can't tell you how many grants I've reviewed that contain no evaluation section, uh, in their grant. And, um, this is a problem. How, how, how are you going to know whether your new algorithm, your new approach is, is going to work better than the state of the art in the field? What are the, how are you going to evaluate the approach? What are the criteria you're going to use to know whether it's working and whether it's working better than the state of the art? So be specific, lay out an experimental design. What are the criteria? How, how, How good does your algorithm need to perform? How much better does it need to be performed in the state of the art to conclude that it is indeed better and have have some objective criteria? Number six, application to real data is important. I'm a big believer in simulation studies, especially for machine learning where you know what the answer is, but you can't just rely on simulation studies. You need a real data component and application to, to show because at the end of the day, you're saying, hey, here's my new method. I think it's great. I think it's the best thing out there. And what better way to demonstrate it than to discover new things in real data. That's what we ultimately want new methods for, right, is to reveal those things we're missing with other methods. Number seven, provide as many details as possible about your new and novel informatics algorithm or method given the space constraints. Especially for young people, uh, reviewers aren't going to give you the benefit of the doubt. So you want to be specific and give as much detail as you can given the space constraints. Number eight, be productive. Um, I think this is one of my most important pieces of advice for young people is, you know, get things out, publish, be productive because reviewers are going to look at your biosketch, they're going to look at your accomplishments, and they want to see a steady pace of productivity uh, and and because that demonstrates to the reviewers and to the funding agency that if they give you a million dollars to develop a new method that you're actually going to... Um, produce results that are going to impact the community. All right, number nine. um, Innovation and and approach have the biggest impact on your final score. The National Library of Medicine did a factor analysis of scores, um, you know, the component scores of Significance, Innovation, Approach, Investigator, and Environment, and looked at the degree to which those predict the overall impact score that you get on your grant. And at least at the NLM on their uh, grants, the innovation and approach had the highest correlation with overall score, whereas in other, most other um, uh, review panels and institutes, significance and approach usually weigh more heavily. Um, so keep that in mind. Um, so not only does your method need to be innovative, but you need to do a good job describing why and how it's innovative in the grant. All right, finally, number 10, make sure you have good collaborators with real effort budgeted to cover your weaknesses. If you are a more of a computational type with a PhD and you're proposing to apply your machine learning, your novel machine learning algorithms to electronic health record data on a particular, focused on a particular disease, you need an expert on that disease, ideally a clinician who can help you um, understand the data and the questions that and interpret the results. Um, and it's often, you know, it's it's common for junior people to put a senior investigator, like a department chair or a center director or somebody well-established in the field on the grant, but they often go on the grant for just a few percent effort. And that doesn't always convince the reviewers that that person's gonna do any real work on your grant, and it, and it makes it obvious that it's just there for in name only, right, to give a little bit of oomph to the grant. So if you can, convince your senior collaborator to go on the grant for 10% effort, and that tells the reviewers, okay, this is somebody who's going to spend some real time on this. All right, Marilyn, what do you think?
1: I think these are brilliant. Um, I think this was really timely because many of us are thinking about our R01s either as new grants in February or as revisions to go in in March. Um, As you were just talking, I thought of two other points that I would make to add to that list Um, One, and really I thought of this because I literally today just got an email about this, but it's to talk to a program officer. So one of my trainees is working on a grant and has been on the fence about whether the grant is a good fit for NIGMS or NLM. And it's methodology, but it's kind of an algorithm and it's kind of a combination of different algorithms. And so, and I too was on the fence about whether... It was, you know, General Medical Science or National Library of Medicine. And the NLM program officer said that she thought it was better for NIGMS. That is so insightful. Why waste the time sending something to a program that's not the right fit? So I think as early as you can talk to a program officer to just make sure that what you're doing is in the right space is so important.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a really great point, Marilyn. And uh, program officers, the vast majority of them are really very friendly people. They're there to help you. It's their job to talk to you. So don't feel like you're burdening them or that they don't want to talk to you. Um, that's been my experience. So I would definitely encourage young people to reach out, talk to program officers before you start writing a grant. Very, very helpful.
1: And the other one is, so just like the program officers, remember these are just people doing their job and they're very helpful. Think about the people reviewing the grant. So typically at study section, grants are assigned to three reviewers. These are three humans who are your scientific peers or mentors, and they review your work. Well, going back to the news item that Jason mentioned earlier, that book by Steven Pinker, The Sense of Style, The Thinking Person's Guide to Writing in the 21st Century. We need to write our grants so that all three people can understand it. And so rarely is somebody an expert in all in your discipline. Typically you have one who's really an expert in your topic and then two that are tangentially related to it. So you need to write in a language that they understand that They know it's innovative because you've explained how it's innovative and they know that you're capable of doing the approach because you've given them enough evidence to show that the approach will work. The other point uh, related to that is if you're proposing a method or a new innovative method that does better than a previous method. So to your point about comparing it to the status quo, if the developer of the status quo is a standing member of that study section, Be sure to cite their papers and say, you know, the strengths of that method, but be honest about the weakness. And I think as scientists, we all want to see the field move forward. But ignoring the work of a person who's on the panel and not citing it is sure to have that person kind of ding you in the review.
0: Yeah, great, great points, Marilyn. And I I completely agree about writing to the reviewers. And, and, And what I tell young people who don't have a lot of experience in grant writing is that you have to put your yourself in the head of the reviewer, right? Mm -hmm. Most reviewers get six, eight, ten grants to review. That's a lot of work. Most reviewers put it off to the weekend before the review. So they're scrambling. Their Saturday and Sunday is spent reviewing these eight grants. And that's the last thing you want to be doing on your weekend is reviewing grants. It's a very unpleasant thing. Nobody enjoys it. So your job as a grant writer is to make it easy for the reviewer to read your grant, to understand what it is you're doing, why it's innovative, why it's important, you commu- you know, that you can communicate clearly the technical detail to, that are necessary for them to understand your method so that they can get through it. They, you want them to be able to read your grant, understand it in less than an hour so that they can then spend another hour writing the review. And, and if it takes them a third or fourth hour to get through your grant, you're done you're not going to get a good score. So that's, that's a very important tip.
1: Jason, any closing remarks?
0: So um, I ran across this phrase um, this last week that's commonly used in the business community. And I, I think I've heard it before, but it never really registered in my head. And the phrase is, culture eats the lunch of strategy. And I I thought that was really interesting. So I kind of looked it up and dove into it and got really interested in it. And I'm sure, like, you know, people in the business community uh, know this inside and out. But it was a little bit new to me, or at least I had never really thought about it in any detail. So uh, the example I saw um, is uh, for Enterprise Rent-A-Car. And... So if you think about the rental car business and strategies that are used for success in in rental cars, uh, National and Alamo, at least in the United States, are big uh, car companies, um, and they had a strategy in place uh, to put their rental facilities at airports and other high traffic areas, which makes a lot of sense. You fly to an airport and you rent a car and go. And so that's a, you know, it's an understandable business strategy. And... National um, historically has focused on business customers willing to pay a little bit more for fast waiting times, um, and Alamo tends to focus a little bit more on budget-minded customers. And these are, you know, these are clear business strategies that make sense. But the enterprise rent-a-car story is really interesting. What they did was really focus on the customer. They placed their rental outlets close to car dealers so that people could rent while their car was being repaired. That makes great sense. Um, they also come to pick up their customers because you often need a rental car when you don't have a ride, right? You need a ride to go get the rental car because your car is out of service. So, um, so they really focused on that. And their, uh, their focus on the customer experience allowed them to grow, compete, and they ultimately purchased National and Alamo, making them the top rental car company in the U.S. And I have a link here in the show notes to a Forbes article um, from 2015 that, that talks about this enterprise rent-a-car um, example, which really resonated with me. And reading this really got me thinking about clinical uh, informatics. And is there something we can learn here about the enterprise success story and how we approach informatics? I think we often lose sight of the customer experience when we develop informatics software. And this was certainly true for the EHR. The focus is usually strategic. You know, the big vendors just want to sell as many EHRs as possible, right? And so um, the focus is more strategic uh, and about the performance of the method. Now, when I teach informatics to non-informaticians, as I mentioned earlier when we talked about data science, I always stress the importance of the social and behavioral component of informatics. And this is what really makes us different than data or computer science. And it's good to keep in mind, and I think it relates to the Semino paper that we reviewed earlier on including clinical cognition in the EHR. Clinicians don't just want a stream of data from the EHR, which is what the vendors would have us believe. They want to know why we need to tailor our EHR to the clinician and the decisions they need to make just as enterprise tailored their rental car experience to the people who need rental cars.
1: Yeah, I I completely agree. I think you know the example we talked about with the EHR that I mentioned earlier in building clinical decision support systems and whether it's for genomic medicine or some other precision medicine or really any other thing in healthcare, if informaticians build clinical decision support systems without the customer in mind, and customer here is either a clinician, you know, a, a physician, a nurse, a pharmacist, or a patient, and we don't have their their best interests in mind when we're building it, then, you know, we're kind of missing the point. We're, we're, we're using the, the national or Alamo strategy as opposed to the enterprise strategy. And I think the same is even outside of the EHR really any informatics tool that we build needs to be useful to the people who will use it. I've seen this lots of times where people will build a tool or a piece of software and write this paper where they've solved this really important question. And then when you talk to somebody in that scientific discipline, it turns out the question was not important at all. It was a solved problem years ago using traditional methods. And now there's a slick, fast way to do it that really doesn't get you anywhere. But the informatician didn't actually speak to a content expert to learn what is an important question. You know, where is your gap? Where do you need a tool? Not, I built you a new tool to do the same thing that you can already do. And so, yeah, I think that phrase is really important for us to think about in clinical informatics. And and we're seeing that certainly in the EHR, but also in a lot of other informatics tools as well.
0: All right. Any last closing remarks, Marilyn?
1: No, I think this has been great. Uh, this is the end of 2019, so this will be our last episode for the year. It's been a lot of fun, and I'm looking forward to doing this more in 2020. Uh, we mentioned earlier, but I'll just say again, please send us your feedback, you know, topics that you want to hear about, either scientific or training, um, things that you like, things that you don't. That feedback is really helpful to us. This is something that you know we're passionate about because we want to train the next generation, but we want to want to talk about the things that you want to hear about.
0: All right. See you in 2020.
1: Sounds good. That is it for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. We hope you will be able to find the time to join us again. Feel free to get in touch with us for feedback or suggestions. You can find our contact info online at bmipodcast.org. It is now officially Miller Time here in Philadelphia.